Good morning. Um, as Aaron said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's an honor to be with you. Uh, even greater honor to open up the Word of God with you this morning. As you saw attested to earlier with the little ones, this is Palm Sunday, and I recognize uh, that nomenclature may not mean a whole lot to many of you, uh, so I wanted to briefly explain what Palm Sunday entails. Uh, so Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week, and Holy Week is a week set apart in the Christian calendar, uh, the calendar that has been recognized by the global church for thousands of years. Uh, it is a week where we remember and reflect upon the final days of Jesus' earthly life. And we kick it off with Palm Sunday, with remembering and reflecting upon this day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, just a few days before he was put to death. And so this Palm Sunday morning, we'll be looking at just that, the record from Matthew's gospel, when Jesus rode into town for the very last time. And so I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. It says, Now when they, the disciples and Jesus, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd sped, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? For your word, we believe your word is true. And Father, I pray that you would meet us here as we study this text, as we study your word. I pray that it would not be a mere intellectual exercise, but rather that as we engage the living word, that we would encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. Father, I ask that this morning, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, 
Back in 2015, the New York Times published an article by Wesley Morris entitled, The Year We Obsess Over Identity. And in this piece, Morris explains how our culture has become infatuated with self, obsessed with finding the answer to the question, who am I? And it's not surprising that four years later, things are not much different. I was reminded of this uh, this week, uh, this past week when I watched the season finale to This Is Us. Those of you who have not yet seen the episode, I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's a scene in this episode where Tess, a young teenage girl, is wrestling with some normal teenage identity questions, and this is what her uncle Kevin says in reply. He says, this whole idea of not really knowing who you are deep down inside, that's my life story. And one thing that I've learned is that we don't figure out exactly who we are all at once. I think it happens over a long period of time, like piece by piece. I think that's how it works, you know. I think we go through this life slowly but surely, just collecting these little pieces of ourselves that we can't really live without until eventually we have enough of them to feel whole. I think we probably would all agree that that is the dominating narrative of the day, that our goal in life is to answer this question, who am I, to find oneself, if you will. And if we succeed in this venture, then we might feel whole or complete. And although Kevin does not say it in his monologue, what is clearly implied is that when we discover the answer to that question, he argues, he is arguing that we will then know the answer to many other questions and we'll know how to live, what to do with our lives, how to spend our time, who to associate with for tests, what to wear, what movies to watch. But to know the answer to the who am I question is the key to answer all of life's important questions. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to argue that seeking to answer the question, who am I, is insignificant or even unnecessary. However, the Bible is built on the fundamental proposition that who am I is not the most important question in life for us to answer. But rather, the Bible asserts that far and away the most important question for us to answer is not who am I, but instead it's the question that's lingering at the end of this text, who is this? Who is this man, Jesus? And what we'll see in a moment is is the answer to that question, who is Jesus, that enables us to answer all the other questions. In fact, it's the answer to that question that even enables us to answer the question of the day, who am I? And so this morning, I want to unpack this story from Matthew 21, and I'd like to look at two questions. First, who is this man, Jesus? And then second, why is he so hard to identify? Who is this man, Jesus, and why is he so hard to identify? Let's begin In many ways, if you were reading the 
Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end, you would recognize that the whole gospel really is seeking to answer this very question, who is Jesus? And throughout the book, we are given countless hints and clues as to his real identity, but it's not until here in Matthew 21 that that Matthew really pulls back the curtain for all to see. Look with me at the text again, starting in verse 2. It begins with Jesus asking his disciples to go find a donkey and a colt and bring them to him. Now, without the context, we might just assume that Jesus is simply tired of walking and wanting to hitch a ride. Most scholars believe that this journey that Jesus and the disciples were on was about a 17-mile journey, and, and this last leg was another two miles, and clearly it would be nice to ride and walk, not walk. And yet what we know from this and other gospel accounts is that Jesus and his disciples, they were always on the move, always on foot, and that this is, in fact, the only instance that we have record of where Jesus rode instead of walked. So we're immediately keyed into the fact that something special is going on here. And there is something profoundly special in this act of riding on a donkey, both culturally and religiously. And what we'll see in just a moment is that this very act of riding on a donkey is what most clearly reveals who Jesus is. So if you look with me now first at the historic, cultural ramifications of this act. You see, in ancient Near Eastern culture, there was only one person who never, ever walked into town. He always rode, and that was the king. In the first century, it was believed to be beneath royalty to walk the dirty streets. Not only that, but it was assumed that if the king needed your animal, your donkey, your horse, you are required to give it to him. Verse 3 says, Jesus told the disciples, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. What we need to recognize here is that a person's livestock was their most valuable possession. Their livelihood depended on it. So you did not lend out your animals. It was too risky. It was too dangerous. The only time you would do that as if the king requested to use it. It wasn't just the cultural components that were at play here. There was a massive religious significance to what Jesus was doing as well. Verse 4 says, This, this riding on a donkey, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew quotes the prophet, Zechariah, a message that was recorded over 500 years ago. And what most of us fail to see here is that Matthew is throwing a bone here to his non-Jewish audience because the Jewish audience would not have needed this footnote. They would have not needed to be reminded of this text. Most of the men would have memorized it, would have been required to know it, The women and children would have been very familiar with it. They all would have known about this promise that had been made that someday, one day, someone special is going to roll into town. And Zechariah had given even very specific details so that you can recognize this special person when he shows up. So he'd be coming in, riding on a donkey. But not just any donkey, a foal, a young donkey that had never before been ridden. 
And so here comes this man, Jesus, who has already fulfilled countless other prophecies over the past three years, and he's already generating, generating this major buzz around town. But this, this was the last straw. The disciples in the crowd, they finally got it. Who is Jesus? He is the long-awaited-for king. And we know they get it because for the first time in Matthew's gospel, they finally begin to give Jesus the royal reception that he is due. Look again at verse 7. It says, the disciples brought the donkey and they immediately realized something was dreadfully wrong. You see, if Jesus was the king, he could not possibly be required to ride bareback on this beast of burden. Kings always had a saddle. Their body was too special to be placed on the bare back of a donkey. But what were they to do? They didn't have a saddle. These were poor fishermen. They didn't have any money to buy a saddle, so they improvised. They took off their coats and laid them on the donkey, probably exposing themselves to humiliation, being inappropriately dressed, but they didn't care because the king was here. What Luke's gospel reveals that we don't see explicitly here is that when it came time for Jesus to ride, the disciples, in a further attempt to honor the king, literally placed Jesus on the donkey. Clearly, Jesus was not unfit to mount the animal himself. But think about a coach for a sports team after he wins or she wins a a big victory how the team will will place the coach on their shoulders and parade them around the stadium. This is the kind of honor that we see here for Jesus. They are raising him up, exalting him, placing him on the donkey. But the disciples weren't the only one to recognize what was happening here. The crowd, too, joined in on the excitement. The little context is needed here. The, the reason Jesus and the disciples are going to Jerusalem because it was time to celebrate Passover. It's an extremely important Jewish holiday. And historians believe that every year thousands of Galileans would have made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which is why there's people all around heading into town. And these people, when they see this man riding in on a donkey, they, just like the disciples, would have thought of Zechariah 9, and they would have been filled with excitement. And so they jump right in, too, and they join in in giving Jesus this, this royal reception. Verse 8 says, most of the crowds took off their cloaks, and they spread them on the road, and others cut branches from the tree and spread them on the ground. You see what they're doing here? They're rolling out the red carpet the best way that they can. And they begin to shout and scream at the top of their lungs. Verse 10 says there was such a ruckus that the whole city was stirred. The Greek word that is used here that we translate stirred is seismos. This is the word from which we get the English word seismic. What Matthew was saying is that the city literally shook with excitement. But what's all this fuss about? Didn't the people already have a king? His name was Caesar, right? And one would rightly think that two kings is actually more of something to be concerned about rather than to be excited over. So in order to understand the excitement of the disciples in the crowd, we we need to first be reminded of the big picture of the Bible, what is often referred to as the meta-narrative. It's the grand story that 
all the other stories fit into. And the grand story of the Bible, which is in fact the grand story of the history of the world, has often been portrayed as a four-act play. Those four acts are creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Let me explain this quickly. The first two acts of the play are recorded in the first few pages of the Bible. Genesis 1, God created the world and it was good. And then Genesis chapter 3, the fall happens. Sin enters the world and begins to wreak havoc. Man's relationship with God, with one another, with creation, all begin to decay, to get worse and worse and worse. And the rest of the Old Testament is the unfolding of this decay. It's the graphic picture of the consequences of sin entering the world. And yet in the midst of all this, there's this glimmer of hope. Throughout the Old Testament, we hear this subtle and oftentimes cryptic message of hope. The message that the world will not always be this way. That redemption is coming. And the key aspect of that promised redemption that sheds a bright light on our text this morning is that throughout the Old Testament, we hear that this promised redemption is going to come through a king. That a king is coming to rescue God's people and put all things back to right in the world. And this was no mystery to first century Jews. They were well aware that because of sin, everything was off. It was wrong. And yet they were clinging to this hope that this king was going to come and he was going to make it right again. And it's into that context that we read Matthew chapter 21. And and it's that context that explains why the crowd went crazy. They went ballistic when Jesus finally rolled into town. Just like... Anna of Arendelle, they shouted, it's coronation day. The king is back. He's here. It's time to celebrate. And look at the word they use. What is this word that they shout? Verse 9. It says, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. This word Hosanna has an interesting history. You see, when it was first used, it signified a cry for help, a cry for salvation, literally meaning, please save us. However, over time, this word began to take on a new meaning, and by the first century, it no longer expressed a longing for salvation, but rather a thanksgiving over salvation that had already been provided. Thanksgiving for salvation that was here. So you can see by their very word choice that they actually get it. That this man, Jesus, he's no ordinary king, but he's the king who brings salvation with him. The king who comes to redeem the world and make all things new. Who is this man, Jesus? He's the king. Which begs the question for us, what does it look like both this week and, and really all the time for us to give Jesus the glory that he is due? We give glory, or maybe I speak for myself, I give glory to other things all the time. Sports teams, musicians, universities, brands that I love. This weekend, I often give glory to people hitting golf balls. It's bizarre. We are constantly giving glory to other things. We see this through the way we invest our time and our money, and really underneath that, our affection, 
where we place our heart's affection. What we see here is that if Christ is the king, he is the one who is due all glory and honor and praise. He's the one who's due our affection. What does it look like for us to roll out the carpet for King Jesus? I want to hold that thought as we move on. I think part of the reason we fail to do that is because we often fail to recognize him in our moment-by-moment, day-to-day lives, which brings our, us to our second question. Why is Jesus so hard to recognize? Our text ends on a high note. Jesus is being recognized and honored for who he really is for the first time, and yet the rest of Holy Week is not pretty, if, you've, if you're familiar with the story. In a few days, Jesus will be arrested. And then what happens is just as quick as the crowds jumped on board to the King Jesus movement, they jump right off and they bail on him completely. After Jesus arrested, this crowd that was shouting Hosanna shouts crucify him, calls for his head. It's not just the crowd, though. His own disciples bail on him. As soon as he is arrested, every single one of them heads for the hills. Even Peter, the leader of the pack, three times denies that he ever even met the man. What happened? How did Jesus so quickly go from royalty to rubbish? I think the answer is it has to do with misguided expectations. I want you to think about the primary role of a first century king. The role of the king in the first century was simply to deliver and to protect his people. In the ancient Near East, kingdoms were constantly in flux. There was constant unrest due to military conquests that were always ongoing. And so in light of this, the role of the king was simple. Just deliver and protect. And so you can see why the Jews were so excited because here comes this man, Jesus, he's riding into town. He fits the description. He's born in Bethlehem from the family of David and he's even fulfilling the minutia of Zechariah's prophecy. He's riding in on a donkey. He must be the king who's going to deliver us from the oppressive King Caesar and establish a new kingdom where the Jews can once again live in peace and prosperity. That was their expectation. And yet a few days later, this supposed king gets arrested and all of a sudden all bets are off because a man in jail has no power to overthrow anyone. He has no power at all. So understandably, the Jews now surmise that Jesus must not be the king after all. And we see there that they had inappropriate expectations. If they had been paying attention, they would have seen that in spite of his arrest and impending death, that Jesus absolutely was the king after all. And so I want to leave us here. I want to ask you to, to recognize and chew on what it looks like for us to have appropriate expectations. This is what the Jews missed and what we are absolutely required to understand when we think about who is Jesus. First, we need to recognize that he's the prince of peace And then second, we we need to recognize that he offers a different kind of rescue. And this is what I want you to take home today. He's the Prince of Peace. 
There's no question that Jesus was very careful in his choice of which prophecy to highlight here as he was coming into town. And if the people had really paid attention to Zechariah 9, they would have realized what type of king Jesus was going to be. For those of you who've been following along in our Lenten devotional, there was a day where we looked at this text in Zechariah 9, and, and it talks about how normally when a king rode into town, he would come in on a war horse, and he'd have a huge chariot, and he'd be clothed in military regalia, and the point of this was to communicate to the people his military power, to remind the people that he was to be revered or else. However, there was one instance when a king would often divert from this display of power, and that was when a beloved king would enter into his own capital city. There he would ride in on a donkey. Why would he do this? Well, he'd, he'd do this because the donkey signified peace. That the king needed not threaten or subdue these people because these were his people, his family. And so what we see here is that by Jesus choosing this Zechariah prophecy, he is revealing what kind of king he is. Not a power-hungry king, but a prince of peace. A king that, if accepted, would welcome and receive the praise of his people. But if rejected, if rejected, would refuse to defend himself and allow himself to be killed in order to bring deliverance. See, at the heart of the confusion, the misunderstanding of the Jewish people is they were confused about what they were to be delivered from. The Jews were right to assume that if Jesus was going to come and deliver them from governmental oppression, that he would need to come in power, that he would need to bring a huge army and lots of weapons, but, but this kind of king did not come to deliver them from that. Think about, again, the big picture of the whole Bible, the four-act play, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And we see in that picture, it's there that we see what God's people really need redemption from. They need redemption not from an oppressive king, but from the fall, from the sin that has entered the world, that has entered each and every one of us. Said differently, Jesus recognized that they needed redemption from their broken selves. And that's what this Holy Week is all about. A king coming not to conquer through power and might, but through his once and for all death and sacrifice. It's not in spite of this, but rather because of this great act of weakness that Jesus is given all glory and honor and praise. Listen to Philippians 2. Paul says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a weak king in a worldly sense, right? And yet what the rest of the text says is that because of this profound display of weakness, of humility, that God, quote, has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King to the glory of God the Father. Although the crowds missed it, the disciples missed it, the clear message of Palm Sunday is that this king is coming not to fight, but to die. And it's through his death and only through this death that he brings redemption that lasts. Luke declares in chapter 1 that this king will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. I want to conclude by asking two very important questions. First, is Jesus your king? And secondly, will you follow him on the way of peace? Is Jesus your king? Most of you are probably familiar with Larry King, uh, arguably the greatest interviewer of our time. Uh, Everyone who's anybody has at some point been interviewed by Larry King. And one day, recognizing that Larry King interviews whomever he wants, Someone asked Larry, if you could interview anybody, who would it be? And his rather surprising response was, he said, Jesus Christ. And in a follow-up question, the interviewer asked Larry, well, what question would you ask him? And Larry said, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin-born, because the answer to that question would define history. What Larry is saying is that if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is the King of Kings, then it changes everything. Do you believe that Jesus is the King? The King through whose life, death, and resurrection brings redemption to the whole world because the answer to that question is the answer that helps you answer every other question that you could ever possibly ask. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I to do with my life? What really matters? All of those questions flow out of the answer to the question, who is this man, Jesus? The text makes plain that he is the king, but is he your king? Have you received Jesus as your king, as the Lord of your life, as the object of your affection, of your worship, of of your obedience? I want to encourage all of you to ponder that question this Holy Week. And if in pondering that question you discover that he's not your king, but you'd like for him to be your king, I'd like to encourage you to reach out to someone here at Christ Central to reach out to one of the pastors, to one of the leaders, or maybe even the person sitting next to you so that we might be able to share with you what it looks like to embrace Jesus as king. And lastly, I want to ask the question, are you willing to follow your king on the way of peace? If we believe that Jesus is the son of God, the creator and sustainer of the whole world, then we have to recognize that Jesus was not forced into his death. As Jesus himself declares in John chapter 10, he says, I lay down my own life. No one takes it from me. And so we have to look at the fact that the one who was most deserving of glory laid it down, gave it all up for those he loved. And church, our mission is to do the same thing.
to lay down our glory, our power, our privilege for the sake of those that we love. The hope for Durham is not that we might conquer this city with might and with power, that we might take over the government or outsmart or out-argue or out-market every other competing group or competing ideology. The hope for Durham is that we would follow Jesus on the way of peace, that we would turn the other cheek, that we would be willing to lose, to die, to be oppressed, to be mistreated, to be taken advantage of, in the midst of all of that, to respond with love. Charles Spurgeon once said on the cross, Jesus Christ completely embodying perfect love looked down at the people he was dying for, completely embodying the opposite, and he stayed. How might Durham be different if we loved like that? Who is this man, Jesus? Is he your king? And if so, will you follow him on the way of love and peace? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. I thank you that he came not in power, but in humility. He laid down his very life so that we might have relationship with you. Father, I pray that we would recognize him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that we, Christ Central Church, might follow him as we seek the peace and prosperity of this city, as we love radically, sacrificially, extravagantly, all for the sake of your glory. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.